If you're a local government enthusiast who's looking for fresh conversations over a hot cup of morning coffee or tea or while you're driving or walking the dog, you do you. You're in the right place. Welcome to the Local Gov Cafe podcast, hosted by Susan Gardner and Ann Mitchell. This podcast is devoted to having conversations that matter, covering the full menu of municipal topics. You'll discover guests who bring insight and inspiration to the issues that drive and challenge communities. We'll be talking with leaders in policy, practice, consulting, and academia to put a spotlight on civic government and the people who make it all happen at the local level. Welcome to another episode of the Local Gov Cafe, and thanks to everyone for tuning in. Today, we're celebrating some of the 2023 winners for the CAMA Awards of Excellence. Our next guest is Carrie Hiltz, Deputy CAO from the City of St. Albert, along with Manda Wild, Senior Project Manager, Recreation and Parks. We'll be talking about Grey Nun's White Bruce Park Development, a project that was recognized by CAMA for environmental leadership and sustainability. Welcome, Carrie and Manda. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Very excited to be here. <laughs> we're, we're glad to have you with us. Manda, maybe you can uh, kick things off by giving us uh, some background on your project and tell us how it demonstrates environmental leadership and sustainability for municipalities. Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say that the story of the Greenlands White Spruce Park starts with the White Spruce Forest. It is one of the last extent white spruce forests in Western Canada, perhaps even Canada, in an urban setting. The forest is really special. It's existed longer than St. Albert has as a city. And long ago, as the city started to grow, um, it was recognized that this was a really special place. In about 2007, as a new neighborhood was coming on board in our city, uh, the city planners actually reached out and had the forest dedicated as municipal reserve to the city well ahead of development of the neighborhood. So that occurred in about 2007. And this place is really unique for a number of reasons. It sits at the confluence of Big Lake and the Sturgeon River. It is within the floodplain of the Sturgeon River Valley, so it's got some interesting water movement through it. It is a predominantly white spruce forest with a little bit of Aspen Parkland forestry forest in there. So from an environmental perspective, it's really unique. At one point, it was receiving somewhere around 75% of the surface water flow through our city. It went through the forest in the nearby area. So it has a really interesting ecological history. It has been home to dozens of species of birds. We have moose that move through there. We have deer that move through there. We have all kinds of songbirds and squirrels and pretty much every urban species you can think of exists in the forest in this little about nine hectare microcosm. It also has wetlands interior to the forest itself. It has meadow areas, so it's a really diverse area. In protecting the area, it became really evident quite a long time ago, about 2010, that we'd have to have a plan in place to protect it for the long term. The neighborhood that's growing right on its doorstep is going to be about 12,000 people, 10 to 12,000 people, which is a lot of people and a lot of pressure on a nine hectare forest, especially one as unique as the White Spruce Forest is. So a management plan was created with the help of our uh, experts in our community, foresters and ecologists and, and staff from the city. And that was completed in 2014. And one of its primary goals was management of the forest for the people. Knowing that we were looking at 12,000 people potentially using it almost on a daily basis, we knew we needed to plan to keep it safe and to keep it sustainable. 
So the first step of that was establishing a planting program. We're so proud to share that we've planted more than 23,000 uh, white spruce seedlings that have been grown from cones collected in the forest itself by our volunteers. And we've had that planting program in place for almost a decade now and will continue as far as we can into the future. So that's the first step to protecting the forest is increasing its longevity uh, through a dedicated planting program. And then the second part was how do we let people use the space uh, without destroying it. Um, so in about 2017, we started our master plan process, really identified that people were using the space. Uh, it was becoming more and more of an off-leash dog area, which obviously has some implications to the wildlife that live there. We were seeing a lot of goat paths. It's a really popular spot in the city for bird watching and photography. So lots of birders out there all the time. And what we were seeing was fragmentation of that core habitat through that uh, movement of people and those goat paths being created. We were also seeing that people were feeding the wildlife. We have a whole flock of chickadees, unfortunately, in the forest that are so habituated that they will come and land on folks' hands hoping for food. You don't even have to have food with you because they've been fed so much. So from there, we created a plan that really recognized the uniqueness of the forest. We put in about four kilometers of trail through that design process, and we recognized that Different trails had different levels of impact. So it has four different types of trail, ranging from boardwalk to wood chip trails that are just laid over the surface of the ground, to gravel trails to improve accessibility to a fully paved asphalt trail on the exterior of the forest. So we recognized accessibility was important, but also directing people where we wanted to go. As part of the trail development, we made a decision early on to ask that bicyclists stay on the multi-use trail because bicyclists and bicycles have a lot of pressure on the ground and cause a lot of soil compaction. So we wanted to address that. We also recognized it as a fantastic opportunity for education. The city of St. Albert has a beautiful river valley, but we don't have a lot of extent forest to allow people to really explore and learn about the urban nature that they live with. So we've created two outdoor classrooms on the site. We've also created two river viewpoints, sorry, one river viewpoint and one wetland viewpoint to encourage people to see the water without going in and impacting their riparian zones and really having a negative influence there. We created a nature play area, which is brand new for the city, as well as a picnic shelter to allow people to gather in a space that was previously disturbed. So it wasn't causing more environmental impact. We were directing people where we wanted them to gather and then spreading them throughout the rest of the site. So we're not causing too much disturbance at any one time. We were also really fortunate throughout this process to identify that the Grey Nuns White Spruce Forest isn't just important in the modern context or, pre or in the settlement context, but also with our Indigenous partners. There is elder memory of people long before the settlement using this space. The city has a reconciliation report called Pehonen, which talks to the the city, in particular the Sturgeon River, is a gathering place. So we wanted to honor that and work with our Indigenous partners to make sure that the development of the forest was as respectful as we could, recognizing the urban pressures that we were about to put on it with the neighborhood development. Uh, so we had um, our Indigenous partners participated uh, and supported us in construction monitoring to make sure that we were being behaving appropriately during construction, that we we're doing things in the right way. And they have supported us through our ribbon cutting that we had in November and opened the park with an alder blessing, which we felt really fortunate to receive. And we'll be holding a grand opening for the site in June. I'm really excited to work with our Métis partners to find some really fun ways to celebrate this site as well. So the site is really takes on stewardship of a really unique space in a lot of unique ways, providing opportunity for people to access and 
trying to recognize that no matter what we do, people won't stay out, giving them appropriate access. We've closed down trails and reduced fragmentation of the habitat. We put in boardwalks to protect the riparian zones and not interrupt the flow of water. And really just done our best to find that balance between public access and maintaining the forest for the long term. It sounds like a very special place and what an incredible project. Carrie, maybe you can talk a bit about the importance of environmental sustainability and how municipalities fit into this equation. I think that you know, one of the things that we have to consider as we're moving forward with like, you know, environmental sustainability and how this project ties into the community fabric, the social fabric, the environmental fabric, indigenous fabric, etc., is that we don't get a second chance at this. And as we move forward um, with a lot of these type of projects, this was unprecedented for the city. It can serve as a model for other municipalities. Like we looked at effective integration of human use, conservation, indigenous values within an urban forest. And as Amanda had indicated in her previous remarks is this area has served in St. Albert for like over a hundred years. And what we wanted to do was to have a model, a showcase of how we could preserve this landmark and how we will be able to allow future generations to enjoy this area as well. And even like some of the information that Amanda touched upon too, we were like, we were looking at how do we utilize existing disturbed areas and make them better. And how do we integrate some of those undisturbed areas and allow people to enjoy them moving forward? We're looking at from an environmental context of improving the drainage in existing uh, access areas. So to reduce those impacts, we created defined trails so people can still enjoy it without impacting that future um, growth um, and utilization of the area. We also, you know, really looked at um, what we were doing from a, our boardwalks, the chip trails, the gravel trails, or multi-use things. Everything that we put into this project was looking at it from an environmental footprint perspective, um, opposed to just going in with a normal stool with, with a previous park development of the bulldozers and the ash flow and the grass, et cetera. This was really coming into this from a preservation perspective. Developing of two outdoor classrooms to provide opportunities for nature education. Ch changing bicycle use uh, within the forest because people are still going to be doing these things. And how do we lessen that impact on the environment? And I think what was really unique about this area, and Mana touched upon it as well, was how we partnered with our Indigenous population. And if we look at it from a treaty perspective, it's everything there is based on land, how they harvest, how they hunt, how they fish, how they trout. And it was very important to tap into that local memory and to ensure that the park not only preserved it from the environmental perspective, but how it also folded into this Indigenous perspective as well. And I think that as we going forward with this project, um, We'll be working, we'll be continuing to work with Indigenous partners and environmental specialists to tell the story of how the forest um, focuses on non-traditional methods of interpretation, including potential additional integrated public art and digital methods to engaging the public. But it's going to be also tapping into how we're going to be doing things in the future that will lessen our impact on the environment, but also providing people the opportunity to learn 
and to why this is important and how we can preserve these things. Because I believe the White Spruce uh, Green Elms area is one of the few remaining large urban white spruce areas in Western Canada. So <clears throat> this is uh, this is paramount to, to, to moving forward. So I'd just like to just use these, uh, these few minutes to talk about that importance and how we move forward from an environmental perspective. Other municipalities will be able to tap into our learnings if they, if they so choose. And I think this will also impact us moving forward and how we look at all of our park development uh, within the city of St. Albert. It's an incredible holistic approach that's been taken. And uh, I hope other municipalities will find some inspiration in it and perhaps use it as a bit of a roadmap for thinking about how to perhaps deal with those kinds of areas and developments within their own community. I want to thank you both so much uh, for sharing your story with us, Carrie and, and Manda. It's a great project and congratulations to you on the award. Thank you so much. And uh, we're super excited about uh, being selected in uh, 2023. Now I'll hand things over to Anne as she welcomes our next guest. This morning, we're welcoming the team for the Muskoka Area Indigenous Leadership Table, a project that was recognized by CAMA for municipal collaboration with external organizations. I'm joined now by Tina Gilborn, Project Manager, Chief Ted Williams, Rama First Nations, Mayor Ted Glover, Township of Lake of Bays, Mayor Peter Kutsier, Township of Georgian Bay. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. Now, if you could please give me some background on your project and how it came to fruition. Back in 2019, the municipalities of uh, Georgia Bay and Muskoka were called upon, as well as the Indigenous community, the First Nations and the Métis communities uh, by then Chairman John Clink. And so Chairman John Clink called the first meeting back in June of 2019. And our good friend Tina here was the logistics coordinator and all of that. And so that was our first meeting uh, back in June of 2019. And I could probably just add a little bit to that. I know that our chair at the time, Chair Clink, he had, he had established that one of his strategic priorities for that term of council was to strengthen Indigenous municipal relations. Staff had gone back and done some research and come forward with some ideas just from looking at other sectors, not just municipalities, but other sort of sectors, the mining sector. We've done some research on different kinds of things that people around Ontario and Canada have been doing to build strong relationships with Indigenous nations. And that's when we came up with the idea. It was suggested by a mining company, actually, to create a, an Indigenous leadership table so that you could build the relationships before you needed, before there was something urgent on the table that needed a decision. We decided we would reach out. And, and in reaching out, we, we, we asked or we, we suggested that there were several things that we wanted to try to accomplish to come together and discuss. One being creating the Indigenous leadership table, but also um, things like providing Indigenous awareness training to our staff and counselors and creating a land acknowledgement framework and guidelines, and also starting to look at some sort of a consultation or notification protocol that and ended up being the friendship board. So that was the very beginning before we got everybody at the table. Thank you. Harry or Peter, did you have anything to add? I, I could go first if that's okay. I, I think uh, the main focus uh, for me, and I think the biggest lesson learned 
is this is about relationships. And Tina mentioned that. And, and that is the strength of what this is. It's about being sensitive to each other's uh, needs and wants, but being incredibly sensitive and listening. And this, what we've established, I'm so very proud of, and what I've learned from this, I've used in all my meetings, is to listen um, with your heart and really be sensitive. Instead of most government groups that debate things, you have your own, your own turf that you're protecting, you're very protective, as opposed to being more sensitive to what everybody wants. And I think the lessons we learned could be used in any government anywhere, in any government relationships, even at the board tables for, for large incorporated companies. It's about relationships and really focusing on that being the primary focus. Uh, I'm just going to add to that. Yes, we built friendships and we learned. We listened and we learned. And I think that it became a relationship as opposed to just being strangers with our neighbors. Thank you. And I think one thing of that I really picked up on that, the, the line that I like that Terry used is listen with your heart. I think that's critically important. So talk a little bit about the importance of collaboration in light of this project, if you will, please. If I may, the initial project that we were working on was to develop a land acknowledgement statement. We were called upon, the Indigenous people were called upon, First Nations were called upon. And uh, so it was at that particular point in time where things were needed to be expressed openly about the land acknowledgement. The First Nations, we don't need to acknowledge our land. We've been here for time immemorial. And it was incumbent upon the municipalities to learn more about the history of First Nations and uh, Métis communities so that they can properly assemble a land acknowledgement statement. But before you're actually able to do that, to receive the information, we have to kind of work on dispelling some of the myths, some of the uh, stereotypical uh, thoughts that uh, that had been out there. And uh, I recall it vividly saying to you, I'm going to give you three strikes. Three strikes, you can say whatever it is you want to say, but I'm not going to climb all over you. And because I know it was like, I'm a fairly big man. And if I walk into the room and it's all full of non-native bureaucrats, it's like the elephant in the room kind of thing. It's okay. Uh, let's deal with that right here and right now. And so, but dealing with it in a humane, professional, diplomatic manner. And, and that's what, uh, that, that's what took place. And as a result of that, there was more openness expressed by the municipal politicians to actually uh, tell us more. Uh, part of what I had done purposely was to tell them my story, my personal story. And you need to tell your personal story in order to develop proper relationships. What occurs when you tell your own story to develop relationships, there's, there's a, a reciprocal action that uh, the others receive and want to uh, give back in order to start building those relationships. And so that's how we began uh, to develop uh, this relationship uh, with the uh, municipalities, the First Nations and the Métis Inuit communities. Thank you very much. That's truly inspiring. Terry, did you have something to add? I was just going to say that uh, Chief Ted's very modest. His patience with us. And, and what I think, if I could express it in a different way, what he said was that 
he, he openly told his story with vulnerability. And that vulnerability is something that everybody took on right away and realized, you know what, we're all vulnerable. We all got to work within uh, the guideline that we, we have to keep each other safe in the room, keep each other uh, sensitive to what everybody's thinking. And I think that was really the magic in it. But we begged him. We begged him to write the land acknowledgement statement for us. And, and he said, no, you're going to write your own. And But he made us feel so safe that whatever we said would be acceptable as long as what we said was with meaning. And that's very important. Thank you, Terry. Peter, do you have some final thoughts? Yeah, I was just, one thing I really appreciated was early on in the process, uh, one of the things that, that Ted said was, we're basically undoing 300 odd years of history and we're, we're in no rush. We're not going to accomplish that in the next month or two or the next meeting or two. We're going to take our time. And I think by taking our time, we were able to develop the relationships, become a little more comfortable with each other. And I, I admire the patience and the humor that was involved. And I think that made it a much better situation for all of us in far more room, positive, constructive. Thank you. And last comment back to you, Ted. I want to say that I am so proud of what we have accomplished uh, with the Muskoka Area Indigenous Leadership Table that, and I've said this a number of times uh, in different venues, uh, whether it's our own uh, gathering, uh, but what we have created here in Muskoka Area Indigenous Leadership Table is, is something that we can all be proud of, that we are actually leading and breaking ground here as far as developing strong relationships between municipal entities and First Nation and Inuit and Métis entities. You'd be hard-pressed to find what we have going on in the Muskoka Area Indigenous Leadership Table. You'd be hard-pressed to find that anywhere across this country. Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for sharing your story with us. It's been truly inspiring. And I hope that others can take examples from this and learn from us. So thank you for your time, and we appreciate you sharing your journey with us. I'm excited to welcome Sheridan Graham, CAO for the County of Peterborough. We'll be talking about the Prime for Lean project, developing a culture of continuous improvement. The project was recognized by CAMA for excellence in professional development. Welcome, Sheridan. Thank you for having me, Susan. Um, Maybe we can start with some background on your project. Tell us what it is and how it demonstrates excellence in professional development. Thank you. I actually started as CAO just about two and a half years ago. And as with many municipalities, we were challenged with doing more with less. And so we actually embraced a Lean Six Sigma methodology, which is not new to municipalities, but what we did do was took it a little bit further in terms of adopting software, which is called Prime, to map out our business processes and to identify where we could be more efficient and effective with our processes. We were challenged, as a lot of municipalities are, with um, uh, staff that were aging and uh, retirements and a lack of uh, documentation of processes and standard operating procedures. So we embrace this, the Lean Six Sigma methodology. I myself am Lean Six Sigma trained, and we actually went right to the frontline workers and all of the processes that we did and involved them in our training right to our operations laborers 
and uh, trained them as white belts. We have over 100 staff uh, white belt trained, over 50 staff yellow belt trained, uh, eight staff green belt trained, and we have two, uh, two staff that are black belt trained. And so from that, what we've been doing is really looking at each one of our processes and identifying where there might be opportunities to make them more efficient, uh, where there could be wait times, making the customer experience better, um, implementing new technologies, um, and creating those standard operating procedures that are documented. So when we do have um, retirements, we can um, have a good succession plan, which we actually call our people plan, uh, to identify where we need to provide training uh, for staff to bring them up to uh, replacing in-house uh, some of the, the people that we have retiring. So it's really about uh, empowering our employees to be involved and to bring forward ideas, um, process changes, mapping those processes and then remapping them in a, in a new design to identify where we can save uh, money, time, effort and improve our customer experience. And what we've really found in it is that it's created such an increase in staff morale and job satisfaction. Being able to have input in everything that they do has really created a culture of uh, kind of continuous improvement with all of our staff, bringing forward ideas, um, looking at them. Maybe we don't implement them all, but we're definitely looking at them and mapping them out. And it actually also gives us the tools we need to help council make uh, decisions so we can actually show them where we might save time costs and and improve customer satisfaction well i love it sounds like you're really getting some great results from it i also love how inclusive it is involving people throughout the organization at different levels and so on it sounds like a great project maybe you could talk a bit about the importance of professional development and how important it is to municipalities to embrace this today. Uh, thank you. I think one of the things that I was maybe put aside by a lot of municipalities, especially during COVID, was uh, professional development because we were all scrambling to keep services running or dealing with the impacts of COVID. And so we actually did reduce our professional development budget at one point, and we've been working to get it back up to where it should be. Um, because we do see professional development for our staff and they tell us that the opportunities for advancement and, and training are very attractive to them. And it is seen as one of the core attractors to, to keeping staff satisfied in their roles and expanding their abilities in their roles. So we have a council who has supported really creating a corporate training budget as opposed to within departmental budgets. And so we have a core corporate training that we identify um, what our core priorities are and training um, through the Lean Six Sigma processes, um, additional training that's needed through our people plans as well. To be competitive, municipalities need to provide professional development to their employees these days. Um, it's just one of the uh, one of the tools in our toolbox to employee satisfaction. And um, people do like to have input into what they do in their roles. And there are some great ideas um, that come out of these, these uh, meetings that we have with frontline staff. We don't know what we don't know at the leadership table sometimes. And so actually talking to everybody and getting their input um, has really helped both from professional development for our staff, but also again for morale in the roles that we have. So our staff morale has gone through the roof. We have a culture of well-being as well. So part of 
our Lean Six Sigma is tied to ensuring organizational well-being and also implementing strategies to have alternative work arrangements for staff too. And that was part of the feedback that we received through this. And so we haven't adopted a four-day week uh, work week, but we have adopted alternative work arrangements for those staff that can. And so we work with the departments and each staff member to see what their needs are. And so it might be a four-day week, it might be a compressed day. So it, we, we're looking at all, all sorts of ways that we can keep our staff involved and happy. And uh, this is just one of the one of the ways that we're doing it. And it's also actually helping us save money at the same time. So in our 2023 budget, we've identified $850,000 in operational savings and mitigation to, to keep our budget increases as low as possible with the impacts that we've seen with inflation and such. So the bottom line is also also impacted <laughs> positively. Those are some amazing results. And you've made some very poignant observations there too about the aging population and the challenges municipalities and all organizations are dealing with right now in order to be competitive in the job market and uh, not only attracting, but retaining retaining the team that they have. So it sounds like this has become a, a powerful process in many of those ways. Absolutely. Our overall approach to our people planning is moving away from the traditional succession planning, but identifying through these processes that we're doing is where we have skills gaps or where there might be future skills gaps and where we need to provide additional professional development to bring our own staff up to those levels because we have a, a great work environment. We live in a great place to work. Um, we're just outside the GTA. So we've got after COVID, the struggle to keep people in roles has been there. The struggle for councils to keep taxes as low as possible. So balancing all of that in these people plans is really focusing on our staff who are our, our most valuable asset and ensuring that they are happy, come to work, are involved, engaged, and are really proud of where they work. And that's that's something that we all have on our walls is why we're proud to work here. And I think it translates to great customer service that we provide to our residents. Love it. And so it's a nice little plug there right here for County of Peterborough for anybody uh, tuning in as well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your story with us, Sheridan. Uh, again, it's a great project and congratulations on that award. Thank you so much. Our next guest is Heather Nelson-Smith, CAO for the District of Port Hardy. We'll be talking about Port Hardy's system-based corporate planning project, which was recognized with CAMA's Willis Award for Innovation. Welcome, Heather. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Anne. We're so glad you could join us. So if you could, Heather, give us some background on your project, how it came to fruition, and how it demonstrates innovation in local government. Oh, absolutely. So our opportunity actually arose because we did strategic planning in 2020, and it was about the same time we were also doing a review of the official community plan. It was important for me to look at the strategic plan and work with my team on how we could actually align the uh, sustainability principles of the official community plan, so that being economy, social, culture, and environment, into the strategic plan so that council could actually set their goals and their objectives based on what that needs what needs to happen in order to ensure that they have good uh, fiscal responsibility towards the public and so because we did that we were actually 
actually able to take the strategic plan, align it back to the official community plan, and then we were able to do corporate planning based on that. And in the corporate planning, we then took it to the budget. And then we were able to prove that these are the things that needed to be done in order to support the community, as well as support council strategic vision, which of course changes every four years, as we all know, um, but make sure that it's always aligned and going forward in the right way so that we actually always have that opportunity to reflect back and check in. So then when we do the check-in on a regular basis, it's actually an operational update that I provide to council, which tells them where we're sitting, what's going on, what the successes and challenges are in each of our departments. I also provide them a risk matrix, and then we do a report card on all of their strategic plan initiatives that they have set forward for us. That's really great. And just for our listeners, Heather, if you could expand the difference for people who aren't as familiar as the lingo as we are of those of us that are in local government, the difference between a strategic plan and an official community plan, and then a corporate plan, if you could define that for us. Oh, absolutely. So the official community plan is your community's guiding document. It's how we set policy and objectives going forward that are based on input from the community. And then the, the strategic plan is actually a vision of council that is then created with staff uh, assistance. Sometimes you bring in a, a consultant who can come in and talk about some of those high-level projects, some goals and initiatives that you might be working towards. For instance, you might have an emerging issue that that's currently happening and council needs to get ahead of it, such as housing, which is one thing that we're all dealing with across the country. And then you've got the, the corporate action plan and the corporate action plan is what we do as staff in order to support council's vision. And basically what we do is we put it all together so that council can approve and, and accept what our, what our guiding principles are from the administration level uh, to be able to support their objectives and to be able to have them report back to the community as to how we are actually achieving their strategic vision for them. That's so great. Thank you. That's very clear. And I think a lot of there's so much misconception out there in the public. What does mayor and council do? And I think even from mayor and council, newly elected people often find that they are supposed to actually go in and do work, where in reality, they're supposed to be vision setting. Do you find that this process helps with council staying in the vision setting area and rather than I'll use the colloquial, colloquial term, sorry, of in the weeds. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I've found in my experience and I've worked in really small communities, just to give you a perspective, Port Hardy is 4,100 people roughly and the communities I've worked in are about 400 prior to this one. And I've been with Port Hardy for about eight years. But it's interesting how the smaller the community, the harder it is to keep uh, mayor and council out of the weeds. However, one of the things that I will say is that with this, this innovation, with the way that we're doing this, we actually keep council at that level where they need to be, which is keeping them at that vision setting. When we're talking about keeping council in their own lane or out of the weeds, as you mentioned, this is actually really innovative for us to be able to do that because we actually have broken the strategic plan itself into those three guiding principles. We have the official community plan, which is your community. We have the council's priorities. And then below that, we keep the corporate actions separate. So it's actually visually separate as well as when we report back, it's 100% separate all the way across the board so that everybody understands. And there's always an occasion where they're going to dip in and try and figure out how they can assist uh, to be able to see those corporate actions become more of a reality within their own priorities. But it's much easier for us to keep them on that straight and narrow. 
And you know what? It's so true too. It's as we as administration, how are we formulating the information that goes to council? And if we're not formulating in that manner, then there is that opportunity for misunderstanding of roles. So that's really true. So if you could talk a little bit about how this, the innovation piece fit into this project. Oh, definitely. In terms of our council, our council is actually really innovative in that they want to try new things. They want to do, um, they want to do lots of things for the community. They want to make sure that we have a visible and present, both mayor and council and staff. Um, so it was actually really uh, easy for us to integrate this into a way that it actually seems seamless in that there wasn't a lot of discussion ahead of time that said, this is how we're gonna go. It evolved organically uh, at that level. So because of the OCP happening at that time, everybody was in tune with the fundamental principles of sustainability. And so it was easy for us to just align their corporate visions and kind of work together through it. And staff did such a great job of kind of focusing their attention as well on how we can support the sustainable principles. While I, I'd love to be able to say that we dreamed this up in a, in a room and said, this is how we're going to do it. It actually really arrived organically as a result of that. Oh, that's great. And one of the things too, I don't think almost everybody does a official community plan. I know it's more common from my experience in Ontario, certainly not so common out here, out, out in Alberta, but it is really important to tie the public engagement piece in I think to uh, for the public to understand council's vision, but also to understand what the community is expecting of the city or municipality organizationally. Yeah, and the feedback that I've received from the community when we first started doing this actually was really positive because they didn't actually really understand what council did and what their role was. And I think that going back to exactly what you said, a lot of people have this vision in their head as to what they expect mayor and council to be doing. So to separate it in this way helps us to also inform the public as to what our roles are at each level. And that includes the community level because the community has a huge say as to what it is that we're going to do going forward. That's so true. And also don't forget, that's where we draw our politicians from too. So if they're members of the community and they have a greater understanding of what local government is and the various roles, then when they become politicians or run for council uh, to say, then they have greater clarity and everything works a lot better. Oh yeah, 100%. Great. I'm so thankful that you had time to share your story with us, Heather, and this has been very enlightening. And I'm hopeful that our listeners can take some learnings away from this conversation that we've had today. Thank you, Heather. Thank you so much, Anne. Thanks for having me. Up next, we're welcoming the team from Innovating Democracy at the City of Markham an online voting project that was recognized by CAMA with the Willis Award for Innovation. Joining me now are Kimberly Kitteringham, Project Lead, Martha Pettit, Elections Officer, Scott Chapman, Manager of Elections, Robert Cole, Manager, Application Development and Support, and Suma Acharji, Chief Information Officer, all from the City of Markham. Welcome, everyone. Thank you, Susan. Glad to be here. Maybe to start, maybe Scott, you could kick us off with uh, sharing some background information on your project and tell us how it demonstrates innovation in local government. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you again, Susan. I know this is a project we were very excited about as it was unfolding. So it's great to have the opportunity to talk about it. Last year in 2022, our team at the city of Markham was tasked with a legislative mandate to run an election for our city council and uh, local school board offices. And like most cities and towns in Canada, we have a very small office that focuses on elections. At full capacity, we typically have about five to 10 people in our core planning team, most of whom manage different portfolios within the city and aren't fully dedicated to the project. Uh, but together, this small team is really responsible for the full scope of strategic and operational activities that go into planning an election. Uh, and we also have a very large service population in Markham. Every four years, we're running parallel elections for over 20 different offices. Historically, the candidate group we support is about 15 times the size of what, what would a typical federal or provincial returning office would manage. And in total, we cover the territory of about four large provincial ridings. So with that, we're always looking for ways to make our services more efficient and accessible for us and for the people who are actually using them. So for this election, we piloted a few different services that we understand were first, not only for us in Markham, but for the municipal and electoral management sectors as a whole. So first of all, we had an on-demand platform where candidates and voters could register online, and that automated most of our higher volume administrative tasks and allowed us to really maintain that capacity, especially during project pinch points. It was our first election to strategically apply business and artificial intelligence to election communications. We ran a multi-platform and multi-language community engagement strategy. And with that, it was really supported by a network of platforms supplying performance and predictive analytics, social listening and media monitoring tools, targeted digital advertising. And we also had a team of AI powered uh, virtual assistants for both web and smart speaker users. And then lastly, this was uh, Canada's first municipal election to feature independent vote online vote verification technology. So Markham was the first city in Canada to vote online in 2003, and we've continued to build on that program over the last six elections and the last 20 years. This election, we really wanted to take a big step in, in demonstrating transparency and furthering public trust in, in online voting technologies. So in the form of a mobile app, voters could re-verify that their selections were recorded properly after being sent over the internet and sitting in the digital ballot box. So it was a lot of change for us, but together these really led to some terrific results and, and we're very pleased with the outcome. That's a fantastic project. And we know that there's certainly a lot of controversy and discussion and mistrust around uh, online voting sometimes. And uh, you guys have been in this game for a long time and are certainly showing some success with it. Great success. 93% online voter turnout in the last election. That's truly remarkable. Maybe you could share some of the strategies you use to achieve such high participation and tell us about how you maintained public trust in that process. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll just clarify that 93% of is our online voter turnout. So it's of a share of the people who voted, 93% of those people voted online. So still nonetheless, a, a very, I think, compelling case of how online voting is really the preferred voting uh, method in Markham and has become that way really over the last 20 years that the city's been running online elections. I think uh, it's fair to say that coming into this election, we had a, a number of new and, and complex challenges that were impacting our service delivery. Voter fatigue was a, a concern, I think, for us, as well as really every other 
uh, city and town in Ontario. For Markham voters and, and all Ontario voters, this this election would take place on the heels of both federal and provincial elections, each within uh, the last 12 and four months, respectively. Um, and we also, of course, we're dealing with lingering pandemic conditions. Our, our service calendar, you know, started in May when we were still, I think, very much dealing with the public health efforts to contain the spread of COVID-19 and voting would take place in late October during a, a potentially dangerous confluence with the fall season. And then as you you mentioned, Susan, I think unfortunately we've entered a, a new um, a, a new time that's been defined by something of a, po a global politics of disinformation around election administration and really some dramatic shifts in the content landscape and and the global elections have undermined and and presented some new threats to public trust. We we worked very diligently to develop a, what would be a robust communication strategy, uh, multi-platform leveraging cross-platform. Uh, tools to really reach our large and diverse audiences. You know, we did have digital advertisements that we translated into different languages, serving Markham's diverse and non-native English-speaking populations, and we delivered those using uh, a series of of techniques that use behavioral and census-backed uh, geo-targeted marketing, directing people to to translated services on our website, so that if if someone didn't have you know, maybe the full knowledge or didn't have the full accessibility of access to our information that it would bring them in. And we were always, I think, through our different integrated performance analytics, being mindful of how are our campaigns performing? What are ways that we maybe need to adapt our messaging so as to be as responsive as possible? I think we've also seen as well with the really over the last series of years, social media has become an increasingly uh, important source of, of information and content consumption for folks. So using some of those new business intelligence platforms, keeping track of conversations that were happening across the digital space and leveraging, you know, the organic opportunities to really convey accurate information and to control maybe some of those pieces of fake news and, and misinformation at the power and speed of social media. And then I think we, I mentioned off the top that we had piloted a new vote verification technology where voters could re-verify the integrity of their selections. That was really a novel piece in, in giving voters a the opportunity to, to themselves confirm the functional integrity of our voting system in a way that would be meaningful and compelling to someone who didn't necessarily have a high level of technical acumen. So we did run a survey in partnership with with some academic researchers to conduct a post-ballot survey of our online vote verification technology. And what we found actually was through a couple of different control variables that the fact of having a online vote verification mechanism increased voter confidence in the online voting process by about 47%, which is uh, pretty compelling, and and I think it exceeded even our most ambitious goals that we thought we might have. But essentially, voters were presented um, with a prompt letting them know about the concept of online vote verifiability, as well as our tool. Those who received that particular prompt, it was randomized, expressed the confidence level in online voting of eight of just about eight out of ten while those who received the prompt but didn't get the extension letting them know about our technology reported a confidence level uh, 
quite a bit lower at around five and a half. So I think those were very compelling proof of concepts for us and uh, something that really demonstrated the practical feasibility and, and trust building impact of having this piece to our to our digital voting portfolio. And, and we really think that it'll be a breakthrough piece in, in, in supporting online voting and, and digital voting in the years to come. It's fantastic. And it certainly does show some great leadership on the innovation front. And I'm sure is exciting too for other uh, municipalities to see who are contemplating perhaps adopting this kind of technology in the future. Since we have our tech folks with us and we still have a, a couple of minutes, maybe Simon and Rob, you want to add something here on uh, the tech side and what challenges you overcame and was were there any surprises along the way through the voting process, et cetera? That's a great question, Susan. Surprisingly, from the technology side, uh, the technology works. And when I say that, there's a lot of work go that goes into making sure it does, working with our vendors and partners and making sure everything's safe, secure, configured properly. In uh, the context of the earlier question that you had, the team here at Markham really follows the data and our learnings from our previous elections and how we uh, determine the logistics of our voting sites to making sure that we have ample devices and, and education for the public. Those all made it real easy for the technology to work. And I think that's one of the fundamental implementers. I think we benefited from the pandemic. A lot of folks are familiar with uh, booking vaccine appointments and getting certificates and stuff like that. And we were making adjustments on the fly as we were coming up into the election to mimic and and follow the lead on some of those things. Yes, kind of tapping into that greater familiarity with technology that everybody was getting in the process. Rob, do you have anything else to add there? Yeah, I would just add that overall on the platform, I think what people don't see is the amount of testing that goes on prior to the election. We do extensive testing. Uh, we, we run through mock elections prior to the election. We write prescriptive test cases. So we do test the system very extensively to make sure that what goes in comes out exactly the same. Also, during the election, we do audit the election. So what we have is basically audit pins that we can enter during the election. And so it's similar to testing, but it happens during the election where we know uh, we have prescriptive test cases where we input votes into the system they go into what's called an audit ballot box, and then we reconcile that after the election. So we close out the audit election as well. And that way we know as a, a comparator during the election uh, that everything was working properly. So that's probably a process that I think not a lot of people are aware of, but it helps us confirm that at least the system uh, during the election was working uh, properly. And what we put in is what we got out. That's fantastic. And uh, yes, I, I think that's an important point that it's not only important for the public to have trust in it, but your team needs to have confidence that it's going to do the job as well. So that's great. Maybe just the other thing I would mm -hmm. add as well is that we do a full cybersecurity audit on the platform. So we hire an independent third-party cybersecurity firm to come in and work with us and to work with the vendor to do a full cybersecurity audit on the system. So we're pretty confident when we go into the election that our system is safe. And during the election, we do use tools to monitor the throughput of the election and the, the system itself. Great. Now, Martha and uh, Kimberly, 
perhaps the the thing everyone in municipal life tuning in who works in elections wants to know, uh, how did this change things on the front line for your team carrying out elections, clerks, election officers, and so on? For my part, it has made things incredibly easier. Obviously, I started elections at a time back in the day when we were heavily reliant on paper and in-person transactions. This has really revolutionized the way that we conduct elections in Markham. And as the returning officer, I'm so proud of our elections Markham team because I think we are truly innovating democracy in our municipality. We have a team of passionate election enthusiasts who really did work tirelessly to achieve this recognition. And this achievement is really a testament to the team's dedication and commitment to improving democracy and Markham through our use of cutting edge automation and business intelligence software. But I think it also represents an important case study for municipalities and how to balance the increasing demands and complexities of municipal elections, especially in today's environment with increased skepticism about uh, government institutions in general. It, it has been very well received, and I would really encourage other municipalities to take a look at some of these tools that uh, we have deployed in the 2022 municipal election, because I, I do think it offers great potential for efficiencies in other municipalities as well. Martha, would you like to have the final word here as we wrap up? Sure. Thanks so much, Susan. I would say that the access and convenience of online voting cannot be understated. That was one of the main responses that we received in the survey, the post-election survey for our voters. Um, the opportunity to vote anywhere, anytime, that's convenient for them to be able to, don't have to be at home, don't even have to actually be, if I'm traveling for work, traveling on the bus, or traveling even outside the province, the country, all you needed was an internet connection. And that really makes it easy, available. And frankly, why wouldn't you want to vote that way in today's busy worlds where you've got so many distractions going on? I can't say enough about how the ease and convenience makes this available for our voters to participate. It certainly is a wonderful project. And thank you so much for coming to share your success story with us. And uh, congratulations to you on the award. Thanks so much, Susan. I'm excited to welcome Nettie Newdorf, CAO of the Rural Municipality of Portage La Prairie, and Nathan Petto, City Manager of the City of Portage La Prairie. We'll be chatting about their regional child care project recognized by CAMA for collaboration between municipalities. Welcome, Nettie and Nathan. Glad to have you in the cafe this morning. Glad to be here, Anne. Pleasure. Now, can you, can you give me some background on your project and how it came to fruition? Perhaps I'll start with Nettie and how this fits into the really important collaboration. And we hear that word all the time. And just tell us how the project started. Definitely. Thank you so much, Anne, for having us here today. This project is really a one, one of a kind for us. We have a rich history, the city and the RM of collaboration for over two decades. And so discussing challenges is, together for our region is not unique. We are always sharing what projects we're in and what's coming down the pipe and, and ways that we can make our community uh, stronger. And when in 2020, we were having actually in a 
leadership session on a break and and Nathan can comment on it, but our, our conversation went towards economic development. How can we make it stronger? What can we do to support it so that we can continue to see the growth that we have been experiencing uh, most recently? And uh, daycare was really shown on, we, we need those soft services on there. And uh, really fast forward into last year, where really uh, a call came to me, I'm the rural municipality as part of a basically a, a municipal cooperate uh, corporation where there's municipalities uh, that uh, look at cost saving projects that they can work together on so this corporation contacted me and had said the province of manitoba has funding for daycares and would really see this project come quickly in order to do that have these daycares being built through uh, this co cooperation and then have them start sooner than if they were to look at that. And would we be interested in joining on this project and having this fully funded project be in our municipality? And right away I said, I need to phone Nathan. I need to see if he's interested in the city and the RM can partner on this deal because we've been talking about daycares jointly for a number of years prior to that and saying that we really need more daycare in area to service our industries. So I was very excited for this call. And I said, is this too good to be true? <laughs> when I reached out to Nathan and uh, here we are signed and it's happening. Very excited about it. I think that's the most important thing on collaboration piece too, is that when you see an opportunity, jump on it and seize it. Nate, tell me about it from your side of the fence. Nettie has it exactly right. When we look at challenges, we look regionally between the city uh, of Portage of Prairie and, this, and the RM of Portage of Prairie. So we recognize childcare. And the, the real innovative part of this project is the, that we've been doing this type of partnership for over 20 years, as Nettie said. So when we looked at the region, we have nearly half a billion, sorry, nearly almost a, a billion dollars of investment over the last couple of years in industry. And that has huge challenges in terms of what we can support for those employees in childcare. When we had the opportunity to build a daycare, we did something a little different. The city found the land within the city on the edge of our boundary, right by our industrial park. So just on your way out to the industrial park, because we want to service those new jobs in our community. So they have those services for their children. They're not too far away and it's not a big stretch to go and drop the kids off and then after work, pick them up right away. So it's on city land, but it's right on the edge of city the land uh, was donated by the city to the project. The RM made a 15 year commitment to do maintenance and uh, upkeep for the building. And then together we sought out a nonprofit provider here. And again, the innovative part is going together as a group, uh, seeking out uh, tenders as a group, finding one contractor to build multiple sites, finding one lawyer to represent all of our legal interests in terms of negotiating the agreement and then pulling the trigger and moving forward. And we had to do that very quickly. And we were able to do that because we had a history of collaboration, partnership, and most importantly, trust. Oh, I think you said it right there, Nathan. The trust piece is huge. And it's so interesting too, because daycare is such a critical part of economic development. And I think a lot of people miss that. How are are we going to bring these industries and the workforce into our communities if we don't have the daycare to support the workers? And I think this is such a great example 
of collaboration and innovation and just thinking. And it's really interesting to me that you've laid the groundwork and that as soon as Nettie heard this, she just said, the first thing she said is I have to call Nate. And I think the relationship piece is so important. We just have a little bit of time left. So I wanted to talk a little bit about, there's always this urban rural divide in local government. So how have you managed to work across that and looking at your collective areas where you can collaborate rather than the differences between the urban and rural? Really started at one step at a time uh, with that first step being uh, where we were in a position in order to see growth in our community, we had to work together and we were going to lose out on a large opportunity if we did not see that. And that was the first step. And once we got that win, the feeling of that success in a larger form than if we would just be that ourselves, uh, really uh, stayed with us for a lot, a long time right after that. And there were other ideas that came forward. There was better funding opportunities by uh, working regionally. So when the funding is so limited, uh, the best way to do that is just to uh, round up a larger troops and uh, around you so that you can have a larger voice to the province and uh, the province is really supportive to regional projects as well. So we just want to capitalize on that. Our community growth, we, we see people want to maybe not live in the city, but uh, work in the city at, or vice versa in the RM and uh, live in, in the city. And it, it's such a regional benefit in the fringe areas, even beyond us, improve with this as well. And uh, I, I, seeing that, you actually see the results that it keeps you open for wanting to continue on dialogue and growth. And so we have a number of shared entities as well that have happened since then. It wasn't a one only uh, project that's done it. It's been numerous ones along the way. It's been an active uh, two decades of projects that continue to work on a regional basis that we are really in a momentum that we don't see stopping at all. It's our way of life. Yeah, and if I could add on to that, and Nettie and I and my myself really are benefiting from leaders two decades ago, administratively and politically, that decided to move forward in this found this partnership and create a really solid foundation for our partnership. But what I would say, and we get calls from all over the country, from different communities that are challenging, that are in challenging situations and looking for opportunities for partnership. And what Nettie and I always say is, you know what, this really starts with a conversation. You don't assume what the RM or the city or the other partner is thinking. Don't assume that they don't want to be a partner. Sit down with them. Start it small. Start between the CAO. Start between your heads of council and have that conversation about how can we work together? Because I think often we assume people won't work together. And quite often you'd be surprised how willing people are to partner, but there's just been a history that people assume is there and those people will never change. So only thing I can say is start with a conversation. Worst thing is to say no. The best thing is you could maybe create a partnership that leads to better quality of life for everybody. Thank you both so much. This has been truly an inspiring conversation. And I hope our listeners can take away some examples what you've been doing there in Portage La Prairie, in the city, and in the RM. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us, Anne.
We're excited to welcome Gordon McFarland, CAO for the City of Summerside PEI. He'll be telling us about Summerside Sunbank, recognized by CAMA for environmental leadership and sustainability. Welcome, Gordon. Hi, thanks for having me. Let's maybe start with some of the background on Sunbank, uh, what it is, how it came to fruition, and how it demonstrates environmental leadership and sustainability for municipalities. Sure. So Sunbank is a partnership project that we have with uh, Samsung International that we are building a, a 21 megawatt uh, solar firm with battery storage that will that will feed green energy into our electric utility. That's fantastic. And how did how did that partnership come about? It's a unique project in our end. We've Summerside's own owned our own electric utility for a hundred plus years. And we've always tried to to use our electric utility for, for more basically than just providing electricity. In the last 20 years, we've tried to use our utility and the opportunities and advantages that it provides us as an economic development tool as well. So we've been in the green energy sector for a long time. We own a we own our own wind farm and and we buy uh, other energy on the uh, open market from other wind farms. Being environmentally friendly is nothing new for us, but this project really came about from a Basically, our staff sitting around saying, okay, we have three, we had just developed a new field in an area uh, of the city that, that really the land use didn't have many other uses. So we had a, so we had a well, a brand new well field developed and we thought, you know what, it would be the perfect land use to go with a well field would be to have a solar farm on top of it because you're protecting the land, you were you're using the land in a in a very beneficial way and obviously the solar firm the benefits of the solar firm go without saying we had been in discussions with samsung previously on projects and we partnered with them to work with the federal government on, on different funding programs uh, and eventually uh, successful in, in getting the funding uh, to do the project they're really now Building a solar farm is great, but it's not overly innovative in today's day and age. The innovative piece around our solar farm is the battery storage element that's built into the project. But more importantly than that, it's the it's the communication and the and the R&D that goes with, from Samsung's perspective, having the solar farm, the battery storage, and the utility all communicating with each other in real time and trying to figure out the most optimal way to basically use the energy from the solar farm, the most optimal way to use the battery and, and how we can most beneficially use the energy to shave the peak in our electric utility. So it's a win-win from uh, multiple different perspectives. And it's a, a great example of public-private partnership for forwarding sustainability goals for the municipality too. Yeah. And in the construction of the project, we did build into our, some of our tendering processes, some value add criteria for basically local value in the contract. Uh, and the idea being that one of the, one of the positive outcomes in the project is you're building the kind of the local capability and, and, and in how to do projects like this, right? So you're building up the expertise of our, our local labor market, and and hopefully down the road we will be able to partner with some of the companies that have worked on the project to do other good, sustainable environmental projects. That capacity building point is a great one, really as a an investment in the community as well, an investment in the people. Exactly. Um, 
Maybe we could talk a bit about the importance of environmental leadership and how important it is for municipalities to demonstrate this today. Everyone says that municipal government's closest to the people, and in many ways that's true. I think when citizens are feeling the environmental impacts of the changing weather patterns, they're going to turn to their municipal government for the support and the answers first. So I think it's absolutely incumbent on municipal governments to be playing a leadership role in what we're doing to build more sustainable communities. Yes, absolutely. It's a great demonstration of leadership by example and carving the path for others to follow. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us, Gordon. It's a great project and congratulations to Summerside on the award. Uh, Thank you very much. Our next guest is Nicole Newton, who is a project manager from the City of Calgary, and we'll be talking about determining the value of natural assets in the city, a project that was recognized by CAMA for environmental leadership and sustainability. Welcome, Nicole. Thanks, Anne. Nice to meet you. Yes, it's very good to have you in the cafe. If you could, Nicole, just give us some background on your project and tell us how it demonstrates environmental leadership and sustainability and how the project came to fruition. Yeah, happy to do that. So in in 2018, the the City of Calgary's um, Climate Resilience Strategy uh, directed some work uh, to take a look at understanding how we bring value to, to the city and to Calgarians from a holistic perspective with a, avoiding putting a, a price on, on natural assets, but focusing on describing uh, the value in language and how it speaks to decision makers, taxpayers, and Calgarians. So this project started off as a collaborative process right from the beginning, working with an initiative, Alberta Innovates here in the province of Alberta, brought together over 70 participants for a two-day workshop to share, share our learnings and, and bring that together. And then we did a partnership with Green Analytics and Associated Engineering, who focused on the ecological economics and the, the asset management perspective in terms of natural asset valuation. I think it would be helpful, Nicole, for our listeners just to explain how we categorize natural assets. So natural assets um, are, are really taking a look at those ecological portions of, of our city um, and, and looking at them from how they provide a multi-benefit solution to, to a number of things uh, looking at climate change. So a, go- a good example of a natural asset would be wetlands or some of our grasslands surrounding uh, our waterways. And they provide a lot of benefits in terms of mitigating climate change, protecting our drinking water supplies, recreational opportunities, as well as protecting biodiversity and all the ecosystem services that those provide for Calgarians. Oh, that's great. And we often think of uh, how we provide municipal services. We talk about that a lot. And I think every municipality provides a little bit different type of service, more in some areas. And how do we quantify what is really valuable for cities? And I think this project is so very important because there's so many aspects of municipal services or cities or communities that make it a great place to live. And uh, Calgary is such a great place to live. How would you describe the importance of the natural assets in drawing and holding people to the city? 
Yeah, I think Calgarians have a deep connection uh, to our parks and river valleys and and our nature within the city as, as well. And so I think it, it provides a whole holistic benefit uh, to Calgarians. It, it helps us become a vibrant city and being able to help understand the value of them. The City of Calgary's natural assets provide over $2.5 billion in ecosystem services to Calgarians per year. That ranks third uh, in our overall asset uh, portfolio next to our water and wastewater assets and transportation. So so overall, it does provide a high value in a a thriving city and and, um, how we make life better every day. That's so important too. And I think sometimes we get so busy thinking about the different service provisions like standard police and fire that we forget about the natural assets. So if you could talk a little bit about how this fits in with environmental sustainability, and I'm interested in that aspect of it, Nicole. I think it helps us as decision makers make those trade-off decisions and balance economic decisions along with conservation. And those will always be tensions uh, within our society, depending on the economics of the day, the politics of the day, and things like that. And so this work is really important in helping us as decision makers to responsibly make those trade-off decisions. Yes, that's so true. And I think it's so important. We talk about workforce, and we know across the country that we have such a labor shortage that holding and sustaining workforce in our communities is critically important. And I think that this is so critical for us to live in these vibrant cities that are environmentally sustainable and that people understand that. So can you talk a little bit about how this project has been received by the general public or if they're aware of it? So there has been some notification uh, around this work, but we're moving into next steps in making the data available on our open data web portal as well as integrating it into our planning continuum and how we make those decisions. And we're certainly using a lot of the information to guide planning decisions today. Uh, Currently, it's from a non-regulatory perspective, but it is helping us us guide those decisions. I do think the the most important piece is, is getting that information out there in the public so Calgarians can start to understand their value, but also to support developers and businesses in uh, making decisions on, on how we grow sustainably uh, when they're designing and developing communities, but also choosing Calgary as a place to start your business. Thank you very much for sharing your story with us, Nicole. That's such a great project. And we're happy that you've won the award. And I hope that you can share this practice with people across the country and more people embrace this. Thank you very much, Nicole. Thank you. That's a wrap of this special episode of the Local Gov Cafe. Congratulations to all the winners of the 2023 CAMA Awards of Excellence. Thanks for joining us in the Local Gov Cafe. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a minute to share on social media or tell a friend. And we hope you'll join us next time as we welcome our next guest. You won't want to miss it.